You know, Paul tells us, when we come to the, to the table to recognize his body and his blood, that we should examine ourselves, examine our need for forgiveness, examine the sufficiency of that wonderful cross. Maybe you've had a busy, hectic week or day. Take a moment in silence before we partake. Examine your heart and reflect on the cross. Let's do that together. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same night he took the cup, the cup of redemption. He said, this is my cup, a new covenant given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you that you are enough. We thank you that everything we need can be found by being by your side. Better to be by your side than in the safest place in the world. We'd rather be in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with you with us than to be out without. God, we need your presence more than anything we need in our life. All the good things in our life pale in comparison to knowing we are in the presence of our loving, powerful, victorious God. We thank you for providing everything we need at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's something amazing about being joined together as a community, whether you're watching out from the tent or from home. We just love gathering together, and as we celebrate communion, we're actually joining hands with kind of everybody across history. Hundreds and thousands of people of every nation and every tribe remembering how much we all need forgiveness and how we come humbly before the cross, unable to rescue ourselves, and yet in need of him and sufficient fully in what he's done for us. It's what we do as a church. It's why we worship together. We create environments to reflect on his love, to worship and express praise, to go verse by verse through the Bible. It's a way in which we want to comfortably connect people to God, to the Bible, um, and, a, and a community of growing Christ followers. And often we do that through three different environments, right? We have connecting environments and equipping environments like this one, exploring environments. What does it really look like to reflect on what God has done for you, like we just did the last few minutes with communion, and then how to live that out when it's difficult, when people are mean or nasty or stab you in the back? So several months ago, I got a chance to talk to my friend Jill, and Jill shared the story of how her husband, who was far, far, far from God, came to know Jesus how he was able to face death, and how she was able to take what she learned about Jesus and put it into her daily life when she faced the need to choose forgiveness over bitterness. Let's watch and see how faith can work from the very beginning to the very end. When I met my husband, Kenneth, we talked about religion a lot, but he wasn't real happy with it and got into a lot of arguments with friends. In his original business, Kenneth's Haircutting, he used to have a plaque on the wall that was a caricature of all the beautiful girls who worked for him. 
he wasn't in it. His arm was coming down from heaven in this white robe with a pair of shears in it, and across the bottom of the placket said, Kenneth, Herr God. That's how he felt about himself. Finally, a good friend suggested he take a look at Horizon Church because he thought the connection would be a good one. And Kenneth started on Wednesday nights with men's meetings, and that was fine. And then we started going Sunday mornings, and we never stopped. We never looked back. And a couple of years after that, we decided to get baptized as adults. And um, that happened, and that was a very joyful time in my life. When women would sit in his chair and he would talk about this church and talk about his walk with Christ while he was cutting their hair, and they were amazed because the man was the best haircutter I've ever known in my life. And, and he, he would proselytize from that chair. And he got lots of people from our salon into this church. Clients would say, you're an amazing haircutter. I just, I love the way you cut my hair. He would respond, well, it's not me. My talent's on loan from God. Kenneth was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. Um, he had had pneumonia throughout his life from the time he was a little kid. So he always had trouble for as long as I knew him. But the last five years were were worse. He was he was winding down. He cut hair right up until the time he went into the hospital. Um, Saturday night, we closed up shop, and Monday morning, we, he went into the hospital, and he was there for two weeks and didn't come out. So after a couple of days after he passed, I got on the phone with our investors and said, I, I know how much I owe you. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And without Kenneth, I really don't know how I can pay it back, ever. And my investor said, we know it's over $350,000, and we don't want you to worry about it. We are just going to say that it's paid in full, and you don't have to pay it back. I'll send you some paperwork, and you'll fill it out, and we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. And I remember I was driving at the time. I hung up my phone, and I just immediately said, thank you, Jesus, for that help, because I did not know how I was going to go forward. It's been about five years since we lost Kenneth, and my life was going really well. And very recently, there was an episode in my life where people I trusted and loved hurt me very deeply, and I wasn't expecting it. I didn't, I never saw it coming, and I was so astounded. Um, it, w it was, let's just say it was really hurtful, and um, it took me a while to deal with it, but after thinking about it and praying about it, um, knowing that Jesus has forgiven me a lifetime of sins, um, how could I not forgive these people who I had loved and felt as though they were in my own family? How could I not forgive them? See, God is going to call the Israelites who've been wandering into the Promised Land but it's not easy going to the promised land. How do you go from where Kenneth was when I first <laughs> met Kenneth? He would tell me how he called himself the hair god to being transformed by God to say my, my talents are on loan from God. How do you see the promised land of forgiveness and the freedom of forgiveness 
but say, you know what, I'll just settle for a little forgiveness and a little bitterness, right? It's, I'm close. I forgave half of them. See, as a church, we're trying to equip each other to not just know biblical facts, but to take this message of the gospel and to live it out in our life. And that takes courage to forgive, courage to go where it's not safe, courage to say I'd rather be with God in the war zone than on the sidelines without him. Now, I want to propose to you today that the biggest challenge to your faith and mine isn't sinning and failing, though we all do that. It's actually forgetting who God is, what he's done, who we are in Christ. The biggest challenge to your faith is forgetting and settling. We're going to find the Israelites today, the second generation, a large group of them is going to imagine the Jordan River is here. They're going to say, there's the promised land. We'll settle for next to the promised land. I guess we're close enough. The biggest challenge of your faith is all these Israelites who we've been watching for nine months wander this generation because their parents did exactly the same thing, are going to be tempted to repeat the mistakes. Not by failing and sinning as much as by settling. Settling for second best, settling for what God has for them, and forgetting who God is and how much bigger he is than their challenges. So we're going to look at what it looks like to settle, what it looks to, to be tempted to sit it out, and what we all kind of do when we second guess that maybe we know better than God how to run our life. We'll start in chapter, uh, verse number one. We'll look at the temptation to settle due to two things, really interesting. The, the thing that makes us settle is fear. The other thing that makes us settle is prosperity. God will mention this both in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, that often it's for our prosperity that keeps us settling, for we'd rather have a prosperous, safe, comfortable life than a victorious life of obedience with Jesus. Now the children of Reuben, remember Reuben, and the children of Gad, these are two tribes, had a great multitude of livestock, which is awesome. God has blessed them with a great multitude of livestock. But this multitude of livestock is going to drive them to make some decisions that are different than maybe fully trusting God. Now, when they saw, and notice they saw this thing, it was seeing this land they're about, you're about to see, that they went, wow, I think next to the promised land is better than the promised land. They came to the land of Jazer in the land of Gilead, and the children of Gad and Reuben said to Moses, hey, we'd like to stay here. And they mentioned a bunch of cities, Ataroth and other places. I think it's easier to see it than to read it. After all the dry, brown, greenless deserts we've seen in this series for the last nine months, they come into a land that looks like this. They come to Jazer. Notice they're just to the east of the Jordan River. God's about to take them into Canaan. Let's go into Canaan. I've got a Canaan promised land for you. But they're here in Jazer, and they're looking around. They're like, wow, finally, green, green for my flocks. Green for the multitudes of sheep. Green for the goats. Man, I think this is good enough. I'll settle. We'll settle here. Here's what Gezer looks like, or Gilead rather. Just look at the beautiful hills. You can just imagine saying, I don't know what God has for us in the promised land, but I'll take this. One of the cities they mentioned. They, just, they can almost picture the sheep and the goats out there and what it's going to look like for the next couple decades, the next couple centuries. They, they're, they're picturing this and settling for second best. But second best ain't that bad, right? I'd be tempted to settle. 
Here's what Atheroth looks like. And again, you can see Atheroth, like, man, they're just, I can use those, those, those stones we'll use to make some, some pins to hold the, the sheep. This is really going to be awesome. The country which the Lord defeated, I mean, after all, God did defeat the Amorites and the, and the Moabites in this area, so it's not like God didn't provide here. And this land to the east of the Jordan River, man, this is a land for livestock. And your servants have livestock. <laughs> well, this works out really well. Therefore, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be taken to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. There's fortified cities over there. There's giants over there. Whatever that is, I'm sure it's fine. God wants it for it. But I'll settle for this. They're going to do it for two reasons. Number one, fear. It's not going to be just fear for themselves. It's going to be fear for their children. You're going to see that later in the chapter. They're fearful that their children will be put at risk. And often the same things that build our faith are adversity and challenges. And then we try and, with all good intentions, right, we protect our kids from the very things that grew us. And they're going to say, hey, our prosperity is driving us to settle, and our fear of our kids being in danger is going to drive us to settle. I think for many of us, we wonder if God is trustworthy. We don't mind what he puts us through, but don't put people I care about through that. Several months ago, I was talking with a friend, and they're saying, I'm really struggling with whether God is good and whether God is trustworthy because I don't think he's going to protect my children the way I would protect my children. I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you, do you think I'm a good dad? He said, yeah, I think you're a good dad. I said, I'm not a perfect dad, by any, but in general, you think I'm a good dad and I'm trustworthy. Yeah. I said, well, can I ask you some questions? I said, sure. I said, did you know that when the river floods here and everybody pulls their boats in on the Ohio River, that's when I go out on my jet ski with my teenager and we come up the Little Miami. I've actually been all the way down the Little Miami here, all the way to the Walmart in Milford on the Little Miami on a jet ski. And I love the logs coming at me because I'm weaving back and forth on my jet ski with my son on the back. Am I still a good dad? <sighs> I would never do that. I'm not encouraging my parenting style. I'm just saying, am I still a good dad if I put my kids in more danger than you would? Did you know I had my daughter being pulled on a tube behind the boat when she was nine months in my lap at idle speed, but I wanted her to experience that. Did you know that my wife, my poor wife, pray for my wife, we had a zip line in my backyard when the kids were young, and at, at two years old, I had a zip line with a Fisher-Price lockable chair that I could throw her up and down the yard, increasing my wife's prayer life. I said, the question is not, are you going to follow my parenting style? But often we say, God, I know better how to parent my children. And I've taken a good thing like prosperity, a good thing like safety. And I'm saying, God, if you don't parent the way I parent, I can't trust you. And you're not good. I said, am I still good if I parented differently than you? It's going to be the question at the heart of why they choose to settle here. It goes on. So it shall be that when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is coming out of Deuteronomy, by the way, so this is the same thing. So in Deuteronomy, Moses reflects back and says, here's the greatest danger for why you're going to settle. It's not your sin and your failing, it's your forgetting that drives the problem of your faith. When your father brings you into the land, and he gives you large and beautiful cities, which you didn't build. Houses full of all good things, which you didn't fill. Hewn out wells, which you didn't dig. Vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. When you have eaten and are full, you think the next line is, you're going to say, praise God. At that moment, beware. Whoa. Lest you forget the Lord your God. 
settling for the good things of God can begin and become the greatest hindrance to being with God. You're going to forget the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt into the house of bondage. Are there ways we have settled? There's nothing wrong with wanting to be safe. Right? We all want to be safe. Nothing wrong with protecting the things that we care about, our livestock and our children. But have we settled for second best because in some way we think that we know better than God how to run life? The second challenge is not just settling, but it's sitting. The temptation to sit it out. I mean, after all, do you want to sit here and enjoy the livestock where we seem safe, or do you want to go over there where there's going to be battles for the next couple of years? I'll be over here, right? <laughs> They're going to sit it out. It's a temptation to sit it out. And it's an understandable temptation. I'm not shaking my finger at them. I am them. God says, would you rather forgive, and it's going to be hard working through your bitterness and, and facing your past and going through all that, or would you rather just kind of go, well, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, shall the brethren, everybody else is going to go to war while you sit here? If you do this, you're going to do exactly what happened 40 years ago. You're going to discourage the heart of all the children of Israel. Because they're going to say, well, if they can't trust God, can we trust God? Two-tenths of the tribes are saying that we're going to sit it out. It's the flip of what happened 40 years ago when Two people, Caleb and Joshua, said we can go in, and the other ten discouraged everybody, and we've been wandering for 40 years. This is exactly what happened. I was going to tell the story of what happened in the past. Thus your fathers did exactly this when I sent them away to Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and they saw the land, same thing, say, they saw the land, didn't want to go in, sit it out. You've seen this land, have settled. They discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So to show this kind of where we're at, is God, he's going to say God was angry at them, not because they rebelled as much as they abstained from trusting him. And God gets angry and we sit it out. And it's not just that they needed to go in for their own faith to be sustained and their own obedience. They needed to go in so their children would see what it's like to face adversity. They also need to go in so they didn't discourage the other ten tribes who were going in with their families. There was something about, as much as none of us wants to go through challenges, our kids see us in challenge. They see us. What does it look like to trust God when that happens, when that happens, when this circumstance flips, right? God is angry, not because he's out of control angry, because he's just like, you're missing out on incredible victories I have for you. I have a friend who's built this just incredible business, and... He had one of his teenagers came into his house about a year ago. I think it was two years ago now. And he said, God, Dad, what do you do for a living? <laughs> he kind of on phone all that. What do you really do? So he kind of explained what he did and what the business was about. He said, but can I tell you not only what I do, but why I do it? I'm like, well, sure. He said, do you ever notice this statue I keep on my desk? And his son's like, no. And it was almost like uh, the Lion King scene where, where Pumbaa's uh, being held up by his dad, but it was not lions. It was a man holding up a child. He goes, I keep this here to, rem to remind myself this is why I do what I do. I'm trying to lift you up and lift our family up for the sake of the next generation. I'm building a business to provide for you and for our future. I'm also trying to live out my faith. You've seen me get serious about my faith the last couple years. I've realized that I need to hold up and live out an example to you of what it looks like to be in my faith. 
this is why I do what I do. It's not just my faith needs to grow, but I need to grow a faith, face my own anxieties, face my own uncertainties, face my own challenges, so that you see what it looks like to live this out. I love that picture. Don't just sit it out for your sake. Don't sit it out for the next generation's sake. God's just not angry that they abstain. The second reason he's angry is he kind of retells the story. He says, the anger of the Lord aroused on that day 40 years ago. He swore an oath. Surely none of these men that came out of Egypt, 20 years old or above, are going to see the land I spoke because you decided to sit it out. Well, except for Caleb, except for Joshua, who, by the way, now are probably around 80. And at 80 years old, guess what? They are running into that promised land. They've been waiting for 40 years. They are just as anxious today to trust God as they were 40 years ago. Incredible speech Caleb gives. You've never heard it in the book of Joshua. But the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. He had made them wander for 40 years. Guys, we're the generation that our parents wandered for 40 years because they sat it out. Because they did evil on the side of the Lord. But God is also angry because he, he wants us to follow him. He wants to do life with us. He wants to provide opportunities to us. He wants us to see. You think the giants in that city are big? Wait to see how big I am. Right? We don't see how big God is until we see what he overcomes. Like every good movie, you don't find out how good the hero is and comes up against obstacle after obstacle after obstacle bigger than him. You go, wow, our hero gets it done. Everything you love about a good book and love about a good movie is the story God's writing in your life. He's putting you in places so you can see how powerful he is to heal, to be victorious. He goes on, he says, look, you've risen in your father's place. That was, a, that was a brood of sinful men who didn't trust God to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness and will destroy all these people. Let's not do what our fathers did. Let's instead not sit it out. Let's not settle. Let's go in for the sake of the next generation. And they kind of do and they kind of don't. They make a compromise so they don't sin against God, but they don't fully partake of what he has either it's really because of this third thing we all do with god it's the third challenge to our faith we second guess that god knows best we choose safety which is understandably important but we choose safety over courage and that's what's going to happen they're going to choose safety over courage and here's why i said it's not just for themselves it's not just for their livestock but also for the sake of their kids look how they say it they came near and they said, all right, tell you what, here's the deal. We, the men, will go and fight, but we're going to here, stay here in the, in the safe land, the next to the promised land land. We're going to build sheep, sheep folds here for our livestock. We're going to build some cities here for our little ones. We ourselves will be armed. We'll trust God, ready to go before our children of Israel until we brought them to the place. We'll go fight. We'll make sure you get the inheritance. We won't discourage anybody, but our little ones need to stay safe here. They'll dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. Right, because there's big giants there. We will not return to our homes where our kids and our wives are until every one of the children of Israel have received his inheritance. We will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan. Let's we'll make it clear, when we're all done, we're not going to get any of that stuff on that side of the Jordan. We want to be here. God says, here's plan A. That's great. We'll fight for plan A. But we know better. Plan B is for us. Because our inheritance has fallen to us on the eastern side of the Jordan. Just imagine them. There's actually in Gilead today, you can see places they've taken the rocks and made little sheep herder areas. Archaeologists have uncovered ways in which they started to build those cities. Here's some of the remnants of some of the cities they built. 
And Moses basically says, okay, this is not God's plan A, but as long as you do your responsibilities, God will honor your second-guessing of him. And so they really come to a nice compromise, but notice what's not said is that everyone else is going into the promised land with their kids and with their teenagers who watch them fight and battle and get to see God at work. These kids are safe without a doubt, but they also are going to miss what the other ten tribes' kids see. Man, I saw when God took down Jericho. It was amazing! The walls came tumbling down when we blew a horn! Kids here are safe, never got to hear the horn, never got to see Jericho. All because they second-guessed that safety was more important than being where God was. Which, again, is understandable. But when we take a good thing, like safety or prosperity, and we elevate above obedience, we miss out on God's very best. So that's what happens. So Moses basically says, okay, if you do this thing, if you arm yourself before the Lord, we cross over the Jordan River, we go to war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before your enemy until all we've driven out all the enemies before them, then after the land is subdued before the Lord, afterward, you can return. You'll be blameless before the Lord. God's like, all right, you've done your part. Then this land to the east of the Jordan will be yours. It will be your possession before the Lord. You can have it. So that's kind of the, the settling they come to. And in one sense, it's kind of a nice compromise. But just underneath the compromise, they did their part, but they really still thought they knew better than God which land was best for them. So this section on red up here to the east of the Jordan River is what is ultimately given to these three tribes, Manasseh and then Reuben and Gad. And it does make them safe for a while. But God often has the, the, the long view. The long view of even what made them safe in the short term did not make their, their family safe in the, in the long term. Quick reminder of the whole Old Testament. Here's our Old Testament summary that we use often. We have Abraham, right? And Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has many sons. One's name is Jacob. He's a professional wrestler because he wrestles with God and gets a new name, Israel. He has 12 sons. One of those is Joseph. Joseph ends up moving the people to Egypt. Now we're now at the end of Genesis. They're now in Exodus for 400 years of bondage in Israel. And now God has exited them out, and now they've been wandering. This is where we've been for the last nine months. And now they have come to the promised land for the second time. That's where we are. Fast forward... 350 years of judges, then the time of kings, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And because of God's, the people's continued disobedience to God, he eventually moves his hand of protection, and there are two nations that come in, the nation of Assyria and the nation of Babylon. And they will conquer the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. But here is what history shows when they came down. Guess what territory the Assyrians and the Babylonians take? Eventually, they take everything, but the first place they take is the place to the east of the Jordan River. So this place that really did seem good, it honestly lasted pretty well for about 400 years, so you can't really uh, be too hard on them. But God in the future saw that even the place they thought was safe, you're only safe when God's hands of protection are around you. You're only safe when you're near God. Better to be in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego than out without God. That is just so intellectually true, but not emotionally true. Just so hard to believe that. So God says, trust me. Do life by my side. That's the definition of safety. He says, all right, if you do this, take note. You've sinned against the Lord by not wanting to go, but if you're willing to go, your sin will find you out if you don't do this. Build cities for your little ones, but you better come back here and fight. Build folds for your sheep. 
but make sure you do what's proceeded out of your mouth. And the children of Gad and the Reuben spoke to Moses, your servants will do as the Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and our livestock will be here in the cities of Gilead, but your servants will cross over with every man armed for war before the Lord to battle. And they do. They do fulfill their commitment. They do get the land. But again, they settled for second best. And I think we can relate to that. We did that survey in the middle of the series, and what did we, of the temptations we all face, comfort was one of the number one things that all of us said was our number one value, comfort, safety. But if you had a choice, I had two envelopes here, and one is a promise that God is with you, and the other is a promise of comfort, and you can only take one of the two envelopes, which would you take? Could I have both? If you could only take one, and one was the promise of God's presence in your life, and the other is the promise of comfort and safety, which is more valuable? They did a study, psychologists did years ago, and they found that parents that engaged in appropriate, dangerous play, putting kids in a situation where they had to be courageous and had to face their fear and had to try things they hadn't tried before, that those parents who engaged in appropriate, dangerous play produced adults that had less anxiety and worry. Because it wasn't every little thing that got them anxious. They remember being scared before and pushing through and being courageous. They remember being in a situation where they were uncomfortable and they were able to push through that when they were teenagers. That the role of dangerous play, and God is certainly engaging in dangerous play with his kids. I want you to see how I work in dangerous circumstances. It actually makes them more faithful, less anxious, less worried about the future. And we have studies now to show that, that that's true. There is a safe place. It's called heaven. But there's another safe place. It's called hell. C.S. Lewis says this in one of his lectures on the four loves. He says that all of the vulnerabilities that occur with love, chance to be hurt again, chance to be wounded again. You don't have those in hell. He says, the only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers, I never pronounce this right, perturbations of love is hell. There's no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. You're not safe when you love. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. That's a safe thing to do. Wrap it carefully around with your hobbies and your little luxuries. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that safe casket, safe and dark and airless, it'll change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternate to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The nature of love, the nature of courage, will always require us to, at some level, not be safe. To love again, to forgive again, to step out into areas we haven't stepped in before. That's why I think the main application of this whole chapter we've been in is it's better to be in the war zone with God than on the sidelines without him. So what does it look like for you? Maybe the war zone for you is forgiving. Maybe it's facing your past. Maybe the war zone for you is, is overcoming anxiety. Maybe, maybe it's looking at ways you've settled or been sitting out or second-guessing God. What does it look like for you to be in the war zone God has for you, but you're with him? It's kind of how it finishes here. Moses gave the command concerning them. If the children of Gad and the children of, of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, give them the land of Gilead as their possession. That's exactly what they do. They get the land. They went over. 
They were in the war zone with God. Then the throne of Gad and the throne of Reuben answered, As the Lord has said to his servants, so we will do. We'll cross over armed with the Lord into the land of Canaan. But let's remember, this side of the Jordan is where we want to be. So Moses gave to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, and to half the tribe of Manasseh, by the way, the kingdom of Sion, we learned about months ago, and the kingdom of Og, we learned about months ago, and its cities and its borders and the surrounding country. So here are some of those cities, and you can see it's all just to the east of the Jordan River. These are nice cities. These are nice places. They did get an inheritance, and they did get a possession. However, their kids and their ancestors missed the opportunity to see how God could battle on their behalf. Better to trust God in the war zone and see him get victory than to just be safe. He ends the passage saying this, So Moses gave Gilead to Machar the son of Manasseh, and he dwelt in it. That's the northern part. And Nobar went into Kenneth and its villages, and he even named a city after himself, Nobar, after his own name. So there were a lot of benefits to this area. But they weren't side by side with God. What does it look like for you? Maybe you need to do some confessing. I did do some confessing on this message. God, where have I settled for less than your best? What are the areas that you're challenging me to step out and not just be comfortable? So many ways God has challenged me to do that over the last couple of years. And, and I've stepped into some things I didn't want to step into. But God grew me through that and God challenged me through that. Maybe he wants to do the same for you. And one of the ways we just need to confess that, God, I really think, this is so funny to say out loud, but I really think I know better than you how to run the universe. That's why I worry. That's why I'm anxious. That's why I don't trust you. And I'm sorry. I, I want to redefine safety as being by your side. Let's pray, and then I want to invite you to something. Father, Oh, there's so many things that drive us that are not love. There's so many legitimate reasons to be fearful in a broken world. Yeah, Father, would you give us a vision of what it looks like to partner with you and to be near you, whatever we face, whatever the next generation faces, and to demonstrate but Joshua says, be strong and courageous, for I am with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and very courageous, meditating on my word day and night, not turning to the left or to the right. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, before you head out today, I do want to invite you to something. Many of you have been coming for even several years. You're kind of new to the church the last couple of years. You said it's been very hard to connect during the COVID time. So we've been creating lots of events to connect. Or maybe like uh, the story you heard earlier about Jill and, and her husband coming. It really was invited to many, many opportunities before it was a religious event. We are going to have a comedy event, two seatings. Don't come to both. They're both the same. Uh, but sign up for one. Two seatings this Saturday. We have two comedians, Ken Kington and Johnny, uh, Johnny W., and Kenny Cowden's going to do one hour of live music, try and stump him, try and ask for brown-eyed girls as often as possible. He loves that. Um, he's going to do an hour of music. It's, a, it's not a religious event. It's not a Christian event. It's just a great opportunity on our property to connect with one another, invite a friend who maybe is not ready for church. And Ken's going to do some comedy. He did this last year. It was fantastic. We had a great time. And he's also bringing in a buddy of his, a comedian named Johnny W. Let me give you a little taste of Johnny before we go. Here you go. I don't know if you've seen the talking dog clip, but I'll supposedly says... I love you. You click on it, it's his English bulldog. Rawr, rawr, rawr. 
I don't know what they're doing to that dog, first of all, to get it to make that sound. Or prodding it or tasing it, it's wrong. That's abuse. The dog does not row room. And, uh, and please tell me you know that your dog would not say I love you, even if it could talk, okay? Your dog is headed up to here with you, okay? It's not good. If your dog could talk, it would go a lot more like this. Hey, I appreciate this dry kibble that you've been feeding me in a bowl on the ground. Thank you so much. Oh, a juicy sirloin for you. Well, you've earned it. Good for you. And that sweater that you got me for Christmas. Thank you. None of the cats teased me at all. No, no. I love it. Oh, look, I've left you a present. And for the last time, will you stop with the baby talk? I am 47 years old. I'm a grown-up, and I expect to be treated as such. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm gonna head over here and chew on my butt for about an hour, okay? So this is a little piece. You also see this guy guitar. He does original songs and comedic songs. So again, we would love to have you be part of that. Uh, go to our website or our app. You need to grab tickets because we want to make sure we have places to seat everybody. Invite a friend, maybe somebody who hasn't been to our church, isn't even really a church goer, just to have a lot of fun, connect, enjoy an evening out under the, uh, the sun. I'll be there at the first seating, and uh, we'd love to greet you at either one. So thanks again, and we'll see you hopefully on Saturday. If not, we'll see you next week.